Hello, my dear listener, and welcome to Is This It? I'm your host, Donna Grinberger, and I'm here to have meaningful conversations with talented and purpose-driven people to discover what mindset allowed them to overcome their greatest challenges and achieve success and share it with you so you can do the same. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider joining my exclusive Patreon community to support the show and unlock bonus content. For somebody to stop following an account and a brand they like because they get a shock. For example, we posted this one girl because she had armpit hair, you know, so she had her arms up. It's just some body hair, natural body hair. We lost thousands of followers over that. And how extraordinary that people are shocked to the point of unfollowing by seeing natural body hair on a woman. My mum gave me this great gift of being very, talking to me about sex when I was too young to be embarrassed about it, being very comfortable about physicality and body and just very natural. On today's episode, Emily Bendel, founder and CEO of Blue Bella. Emily, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here. To paint a little picture for the audience of who you are, Emily is the visionary founder and CEO of Blue Bella, a world-famous lingerie brand that marries centrality with strength, fashion, and inclusivity, and is based right here in East London. With a blend of academic roots at Oxford and a dash of journalistic insight, Emily also champions women's causes, notably through her campaign at Garrick Club. Emily. Hi, what an intro. <laughs> it is indeed, that is you. So I want to bring it back to the roots. Mm -hmm. So what did you dream of becoming when you were a kid? Because when I was a kid, ooh, I think I wanted to be a nurse for a while. That was one thing. Then vet, that was another thing. I mean, I didn't know. I was like a little kid. I don't think I had a, you know, particular... Um, idea but looking back I think it was obvious I was going to be a founder entrepreneur because I had loads of crazy little businesses you know like I was what? so um you know one my aunt had a stall on Camden Market here in London which you know is a really kind of um eclectic market and there was these little necklaces where you could get your name written on a grain of rice I grew up in Nottingham not in London this is obviously before e-commerce internet etc and so I would take orders from people at school, put a mark upon them, <laughs> get of them course, made, my the aunt would send them, and I would sell them to people at school. And it became so successful, I ended up having reps at other schools <laughs> who were selling these. This is what age? I mean, maybe 12 or something like that. Okay. <laughs> and then I, was, I, had a, I had an illegal tuck shop under my desk. Where I, a, a tuck shop, well, it's very British. It's a um, tuck shop is like selling sweets and crisps and mm. treats for kids. And my dad, because my parents had their own business, they had a, um, a card for macro, which is, is going way back. It was like a big kind of where you could buy things in bulk. Mm. And so I would buy sweets, etc., in bulk from macro. And then I would sell them illegally at school, competing with the school store. <laughs> and that got shut down. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so I had a lot of rackets on the go. So I think looking back... It was probably obvious I was going to do something for myself, but I didn't probably have the clarity of mind at that point to realise that. Okay, that's amazing. I mean, I'm <laughs> hearing that you had a lot of childhood influence from the people closest to you. So your family, your aunt, your parents, yeah. everyone was an entrepreneur. It, well, actually, it's funny you say that because, yeah, I mean, my parents ran their own business. Mm -hmm. So I grew up, you know, with a very normal, talk, you know, talking shop at the dinner table. You know, work was very intertwined with... 
um, leisure time and, 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 you know, sort of I'm sort of second generation immigrant, you know, so the first, it's that cl classic, well, no, not second, third, my, my dad was, well, sort of Eastern European. Mm -hmm. So it was that classic kind of story of, you know, there's a market stall, the next generation gets a shop, then they can send their next child to university and that kind of classic mm. story. Um, so there was a lot of, you know, entrepreneur, entrepreneurial flair around me. But I think interestingly, you know, I was then of a generation, like my dad went to a good university, I was able to go to Oxford. And actually the older members of my family, I mean, my grandparents, great aunts, etc. to them, why would I start my own business? I had a good degree, I could be in the professions. Safe. Exactly. So for them, you know, starting a business was something you did when you couldn't do anything else. So, you know, that's... This is how many generations ago? I mean, only two. My grandparents' oh. generation, mm -hmm. you know. So you'd be a doctor, be a lawyer, you know, have a steady in the fabric of society job. You know, entrepreneurism for them was, you know, something you had to do. So that was kind of, you know, there was, there was that tension. My great aunt, who's still alive in her 90s, probably can't understand why I chose... You know, now she maybe can. But it was um, considered a sort of a surprising choice you know mm. um for, for certainly for that older generation in the family yeah that's fascinating yeah. fascinating how only two generations ago that is the last resort whereas now it's the what everyone strives to be certainly there's yeah there's been a shift you know even in my lifetime you know with shows you know like dragon's den and all that and certainly when i was at university i don't think it was presented as an option in the same way it was certainly starting to be of course Facebook you know all that all that but um, it's changed hugely in the last mm. 20 years yeah so how did the academic pursuit your journey influence your future did it when you went to Oxford did that impact a lot your the business that you created later on did you think at the time that what did you think at the time I don't know I mean I studied politics philosophy and economics right mm. so it's not a normal career into selling lingerie yeah <laughs> so most people that do that degree might be they might go into law they might go into management consultancy you know they might run the country badly that's generally <laughs> that's generally your that's generally what happens your career choices from that degree so um no certainly not fashion so you know certainly you know what, what I was doing I mean I think like many people my university experience wasn't just the academia I did a lot of other things I was you know this JCR student president mm. hi everyone today's episode is sponsored by Momo Kombucha my favorite non-alcoholic drink together with water I've now been drinking Momo Kombucha for around six months and I really love their product because they're healthy, they're delicious, they keep coming out with these new flavors and limited editions, watermelon that I tried recently that I was obsessed with. So if you want to try Momo Kombucha and you haven't yet, feel free to use the discount code ISTHISIT15 to get a 50% discount off your first order. With that, you know, I ran the budget, that there was a shop, there was various things, you know. So I think that experience was probably helpful, you know, running a committee. Sorry, what's JCR? JCR is an Oxford thing, but it sounds stands for Junior Common Room. Mm. And it's essentially the student body of that college. So I was the president of, which, you know, you run for election. And I was the president of my college, Maudlin, um, JCR. And Maudlin's quite a big college and... There was a, a shop run by the JCR. There was, um, you know, various activities and budgets, etc., and a committee, except, you know. So that was probably um, useful experience. And I think as well for me, going to Oxford, 
you know, I grew up in Nottingham. It exposed me to people and kinds of people that I hadn't been exposed to before. And it helped me be comfortable around those people who would later become the funders and the people mm. that, you know. So for me, the socialisation piece of going to Oxford, you know, it shouldn't be this way. This is not the world we should live in, but it is the world we live in was helpful I think later in giving me that confidence to operate in those circles mm. yeah yeah fair I mean this is what people talk about oftentimes that it's not really what you learn in these universities it's really who you meet and the relationships that you that you forge and, that and how yeah and how you can conduct yourself and how you can speak to people that you know would have intimidated me previously quite yeah. frankly so I think yeah and I It's deeply problematic that that's the way things are, um, but it is the way things are, sadly, I think still. Less, maybe less so, but yeah, certainly at that point. Okay. And how did you end up with the journalist job? So then I left. So what happened was I left university. I wasn't sure what to do. My mum wasn't very well. I was looking after her. And then um, I was sort of thinking of law, you know, wanting to to be a barrister so that was kind of one route that I was thinking Why? of because I love a good argument uh, first of all um, you know I, I felt very inspired by those in the legal profession that can really affect change and I think that you know I still have a huge amount of respect for, for people in that profession that you know um, there's so many examples of really brilliant humans um, and I enjoyed the kind of you know, that challenge of sort of making my point, the sort of, you know, there was lots of things that appealed to me. But I love to write as well. And so I was kind of um, umming and ahhing. And I ended up sort of, I kept deferring this place I had for the law conversion course. Um, but I started working as a journalist, sometimes for a legal journal. I ended up in-house for a legal journal, mm. editing um, a journal and doing some freelance work as well. Yeah. So you started on your own and then you got, a place with them I was doing some freelancing and then I then I was in-house um, mm -hmm. and I ended up editing a magazine called Latin Lawyer magazine which sounds really dull but actually is quite interesting because it was a Latin American legal journal and in Latin America lawyers do things like run off with their clients money so it's actually quite you know and I got to travel a lot and you know and it, it suited me in that time yeah that sounds very exciting <laughs> yeah. okay okay so where where does Blue Bella come into play So then I was, so I was working for this legal journal living in London and I'd had the idea for a while, you know, for me, you know, I'm half Danish. I'd always loved lingerie. I was always very comfortable with my sensuality, etc. And I felt... Rare thing. Rare, certainly rare and, and, and certainly rare thing, I think, you know, less rare in this country. Um, you know, my mum gave me this great gift of being very you know, talking to me about sex when I was too young to be embarrassed about it, you know, and, you know, being very comfortable about, you know, physicality and body and just very natural. And so, you know, gave this great gift to me that I've sort of avoided to so many of these body issues and so on that so many women have, Absolutely. you know. So, um, so, so I had that. I'd lo always loved lingerie. And I felt the industry was getting it wrong I felt they hadn't evolved in line with um, contemporary women so this is year this is you know gosh yeah like the early 2000s mm -hmm. and I felt that 
the industry was very binary. So what was being presented to me was either very boring, functional underwear. So here's your smooth lines to wear under clothes, you know, boring, pra practical. Um, or here is your sexy underwear. And this is, whether it was a high-end brand or a low-end brand, this is what you dress up in, you know, for a special occasion mm -hmm. for your partner. Um, it's not for you. It's for somebody to look at on you. Mm. Um, very male gaze, um, you know, very, you know, it was sort of amazed me that women whose style was maybe like this would then be buying lingerie that was completely yeah. non-reflective of their personal style. It was this sort of weird part of fashion. And so I felt that binary view didn't reflect, you know, how I felt about lingerie, that it should be something that, you know, reflects the personal style of its wearer, is for its wearer, reflects her mood. You know, if she wants to show it to someone, great. Um, but, you know, was for for her and, you know, was contemporary. And, you know, we, we as women often buy clothes or bags or shoes, you know, we buy them for ourselves or occasionally to show off to our girlfriends. Um, but we don't buy them for anyone else. And it was so weird to me that this thing we wear closest to our skin, we were being told that's not for you, that's for someone else. And actually that's really problematic for young women because then what, what's, that, what's that say about their bodies? Yeah. So the next leap from that is, well, if this thing I wear closest to my skin is not for myself, it's for someone else to enjoy, then my body is... So is sex. Exactly. Yeah. And so from a feminist perspective, you know, I felt the industry was getting it wrong. Um, and so that was kind of the seed of the idea. Hmm. Um, and it's sort of been in my mind for years and it got to a point I was living in a flat with a friend. My lease was coming up. I was going to have to sign for another year. I knew that if I did, I wouldn't be able to afford to leave, you know, to start the business, etc. So I just very, probably a little bit, I'd been working a bit on a business plan, but I handed in my notice, moved back to Nottingham, moved in with my dad to cut all my outgoings. Do not recommend that in your mid twenties. Okay. Um, but I did that so I could start the business and I thought I'll give it a go for a year and see how it goes. Hi everyone, today's episode is sponsored by Momo Kombucha, my favorite non-alcoholic drink together with water. I've now been drinking Momo Kombucha for around six months and I really love their product because they're healthy, they're delicious, they keep coming out with these new flavors and limited editions, watermelon that I tried recently that I was obsessed with. So if you want to try Momo Kombucha and you haven't yet, feel free to use the discount code ISTHISIT15 to get a 15% discount off your first order. Wow. Okay, so it was a planned thing. There was some sort of a business plan and you did have this, in a way, grand idea because you had identified a huge gap in the market, right? Yeah, I felt like, I mean, it was funny because a lot of people, you know, you know, particularly later when I was raising money in Male Angels, I'd be like, well, you know, what's the difference here? There's lots of lingerie brands, you know, you're selling lingerie, they're selling, and they, they would, the, the nuance of it, yeah. the difference in, you know, how the product was presented, what the product was about, the whole kind of, you know, visual identity, rhetoric, etc. That was, you know, it, it's, it is quite nuanced, but yeah, absolutely. I felt that I could speak to women about this product in a new way. Um, and in the early days, we also, I mean, we also sold sort of sexual accessories like toys and different things. We've, you know, we've moved out of that because I felt we weren't doing anything original in that space, whereas we were in the lingerie. But it was all about, yeah, really empowering women to 
enjoy lingerie as a fashion item, enjoy, you know, the, the style of it, etc., and sort of reclaim um, lingerie um, for themselves. Yeah, just something that you said um, about catering to the individual style of the person. I went through the page of Bluebella on, mm -hmm. on Instagram, and yeah. you really do that because one of the first things that I noticed is there's not just like the typical, and even now using the word typical mm -hmm. model is also telling a story, right? There's still a typical, mm -hmm. and then that typical um, fits right into what you said in early 20s. You were like, well, all these uh, lingerie you know, garments are made for one purpose, mm -hmm. right? For one spectator. And so therefore, obviously, all the models are also of that image of that, you know, standardized kind of beauty, perfection and whatever. So the first thing that I noticed when I when I went onto the Instagram page of Bluebella is that there's there's models like that, which is great. And then there's also models with, you know, there's there's completely normal lighting, there's no filters, they have stretch marks and, you know, they have maybe some bellies and they have different body shapes and different ages. And the simple thing of that visual representation makes such a strong impact that seeing one photo, that one photo completely puts you in a different niche, in a different category. It immediately tells a story about a brand, about the choices that you make. And that's one photo. A hundred percent. And so for us, you know, it's really interesting because for us, you know, it's becoming more normalized, which is amazing. I'm really happy about that. But for us, showing diverse beauty has always been important. So it's about, you know, we have to normalize lingerie so that everyone can identify, oh, there's someone like me by age, by um, body shape, by this ethnicity. Is for me. It, it is made for me. I can wear that. Exactly. You know, we've done various campaigns, you know, celebrate, you know, we've been running a campaign now for like nine years called Strong is Beautiful, where we celebrate strong female bodies, athletes, Paralympians, Olympians, you know, because actually that's something else you don't really see is really strong female bodies in lingerie. Um, so I, I feel you know, in a small way, we're doing this, this you know, important thing. And, and it's, it's funny because it's, it's deeply uncommercial, which it shouldn't be, but it is. And so we're taking decisions every day. You know, we post pictures We've had a couple of instances just in the last few months where we might lose 5,000 followers over one image. Yeah, it's it people, there is a real, but that's sort of almost why it's so important to do it because for somebody to stop following an account and a brand they like because they get a shock. For example, we posted this one girl because she had armpit hair, you know, so she had her arms up. She did, she's somebody who didn't, you know, abs that's absolutely fine. It's just some body hair, natural body hair. And, you know, we lost thousands of followers over that because, and how extraordinary that people are shocked to the point of unfollowing or, you know, have a reaction, whatever it is, shock or whatever their reaction is, by seeing natural body hair on a woman. Mm. So that's why, you know, it's so important to keep putting out these, diverse images um to to, to, to normalize lingerie as a product you know for all women not you know the skinny white girl that we've been used to seeing in the product for mm -hmm. decades um and it goes beyond women as well it's maybe another conversation but we we sometimes place men in in mm -hmm. underwear which is really I interesting was gonna ask, is it only for women your lingerie or is it so we we designed you know the blue bella is 
very much we're very focused on women you know and we've had a lot of discussions internally and I've put out to my team um, about why we talk about that some people I know feel like we shouldn't um, we shouldn't talk by gender in that way anymore my personal view is that while we remain such an underrepresented group in all the halls of power influence etc we have to talk to women you know about women you know if we lived in a world without those issues then yeah let's let's stop talking about gender I completely agree mm-hmm. with that but we're not there yet so we have to talk about gender and so for us we are a, women, a brand about female empowerment we talk to women we design for women we have a, um, a fit, fit guide and resource on site for trans women in terms of fit etc um, so they can access our product as well and then for men or, or those identify as male it's or, or have you know male-born bodies What's interesting is we, you know, our view is whoever wants to enjoy our product, 100% support that. And we will celebrate everyone who feels and looks beautiful in our product. So sometimes we post, you know, this particularly um, someone called Jake Dupree, who's like an amazing dancer, performer, beautiful person, performs at Crazy Horse in Paris, etc. And Jake loves our product and loves wearing our product and looks beautiful in it. when we last posted a picture of Jake um, in the spring, it was, we had this absolute, you know, hurricane that to the point we, you know, by Jake's request had to turn off comments. Hi everyone, today's episode is sponsored by Momo Kombucha, my favorite non-alcoholic drink together with water. I've now been drinking Momo Kombucha for around six months and I really love their product because they're healthy, they're delicious, they keep coming out with these new flavors and limited editions, watermelon that I tried recently that I was obsessed with. So if you want to try Momo Kombucha and you haven't yet, feel free to use the discount code ISTHISIT15 to get a 15% discount off your first order. We lost thousands of followers over it. There were people who were really upset about it and I'm really fascinated as to why because so for for me this this is sort of a really sort of and we're going to explore this more as a brand so so for people to be so upset about it okay what why is that I understand people might not understand it Mm -hmm. so that's confusing that's you know a male looking body in laundry I don't understand it so maybe it's because oh they think well that's silly this person doesn't have breasts and a bra is made for breasts so that doesn't make any sense yeah and I understand that but I don't think it is that because, you know, women with a double A cup, you know, who are flat chested, essentially, we have no issue with a picture of a woman like that in a bra. Mm. Equally, there are men that have man boobs, you know, and we would be upset about, the, you know, that picture of that person in a bra. So I don't think it's that. So I think the reaction is that people are shocked, offended, whatever the word is, by seeing femininity in a man in the same way that women didn't used to be allowed to wear trousers that people were afraid of seeing masculinity in women Mm. you know women were in prison for wearing trousers women weren't you know it was something that was outrageous a sign of equality freedom being able to do physical work don't let women in trousers so you know that we don't think about it now but that was a battle for women Mm. to, to achieve the right to wear trousers And so I think there's something, there's a common thread in this, in that people are reacting to this femininity in a man. And for me, we'll never get to gender parity if we don't celebrate the femininity in men 
just as we need to celebrate the masculinity in, in women and accept that. So I think it's important that we continue to post these pictures, celebrate people like Jake, to normalise this sort of femininity in men in order for us as women to achieve gender parity. So it's a very interesting space. It's very highly charged, um, but I think we've got a role to play. Definitely. And there's so many things that I want to add there. So, for example, when you were saying you were wondering why are people reacting so strongly? Well, I think there's some people that see it as a political stance. They're like, okay, well, I'm anti-gay or I'm anti-this or whatever it is for them. And then they maybe put you in that bracket of the opposing side and then they just immediately unfollow. So it's kind of an ideally ideological placement could be could be one of the guesses i think the second one which could probably be the ones that don't think that deeply they just maybe see something that they just don't enjoy and then they just you know unfollow that unfollow i feel like it's a strong action for just seeing something that's you don't my, like yeah that's my point so if i saw something i didn't like you know scroll past yeah but to leave a comment that's you know mm, so strong to of course take an action I understand if people, you know, that's just, you know, for whatever reason, but there's a stronger reaction in many cases, which is what we're sort of trying to unpick. Um, but I think, you know, fashion, it sounds frivolous fashion, but actually fashion is this really powerful thing, you know, that reflects so much and can sort of instigate so much. Mm -hmm. um, and the trousers, I think, you know, the, the women in trousers thing is is a good thing to consider in this context it's been normalized now but you know so recent these things people don't realize it was only in 1993 that women were officially allowed to wear trousers in the u.s senate my year yes now, yeah, when you, yeah. I am allowed. <laughs> yeah exactly i mean it wasn't enforced for a long time before that you know but you know for women to sort of not officially be allowed to wear trousers in the u.s senate only you know less than 30 years ago well, 30 years ago isn't it yeah. Um, or, you know, in schools, women weren't allowed to, girls weren't allowed to wear trousers. Only a few years ago, states like North Carolina overturned those kinds of rulings. And then we all know those statements like who wears the trousers in your relationship, who were. Mm. So these things. Symbols. Yeah. There is a message in inhibiting people to express themselves in fashion. So I think there's something, you know, to be honest, I'm still understanding it myself and working on understanding where some of this comes from and considering it and what role we have to play in it. But um, yeah, I think there'll, there'll be a myriad of reasons for sure. But it's, uh, yeah, to me, why do, why do people mind? If, somebody, if someone's not hurting anyone, they're celebrating, I'll they feel confident, why. happy. Let, they're you know. threatened. Maybe, maybe. Anything that's new is mm. scary because it threatens your current reality of the known. Mm. Yeah. So seeing an image, was it Jake you said? Yeah. yeah. That's perhaps most likely something maybe somebody has never seen. Yeah. And it's a shock. And maybe they feel so strongly about it because it's threatening their reality, what they think is normal. And so they feel very compelled to yeah. fight back. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's definitely some of that, some of that in it. But going back to your original point, so you know, so I think there is power in this kind of, you know showing all these different bodies you know definitely feeling confident empowered enjoying our product um, and also I think the other part of it is moving the bra 
out of this realm of sort of patriarchal ownership, you know, mm. that the bra was its sexy item. It's like, no, look at our Instagram. The girl, you know, girls wear it styled as outerwear. It's part of your outfit. It's a layering piece. It's it's many different things. Um, it's not, you know, it's it's not inherently a sexy item, you know. Just like a dress might be oh, many I things. I thought about it as a practical item for women. Was yeah. it supposed to be a sexy item for men? That it definitely there is a kind of universality. Oh, it's a bra. There's something sort of sexual about it, and that that's true. You know, if you look at advertising, etc., and limitations on ads and how difficult it is for us to get image approval on Meta, etc. What's happening with the nipple? <laughs> what? The, the nipple is cancelled. Did you not know? It's cancelled. No I more nipples. No more nipples. <laughs> Why? What's wrong with the nipple? Uh, uh, only women's nipples. Men's nipples are not cancelled. So, I mean, how long have you got? No, no, I'm, <laughs> so, genuine, I'm genuinely confused. So basically, I don't you cannot get approval for a paid or promoted um, ad or post on most social platforms if there's any nipple showing. And the context is almost irrelevant. You know, you could have the, obviously the most provocative sexual, you know, or you could have a woman breastfeeding or you could have, you know, a more practical but slightly sheer bra where the nipple shows through. Doesn't really matter. It's a nipple. So, you know, that. but men's nipples, obviously, that's okay. Um, and the other thing I suspect, I can't prove this yet, but I would like to maybe find a way to, but I also, having been in this game so long, I feel like approvals on non on bodies that are not as normalised in advertising are also harder to get approval on, you know. So if you have a more sort of, you know, stereotypical model body versus a, a less stereotypical model body, I feel like sometimes we we, we, we seem to, I've got to careful what I say because obviously we'd want to sort of back this up with sort of um, statistics, but it does seem to be harder to get approval there as well. So there's a whole load of a load of stuff there too, yeah. But do we know what, what's wrong with the nipple that it is banned? Because in the same way that, you know, all bras, you know, have this patriarchal layer of their sexualized, so do all breasts. So the breast is, you know, considered sexual. And so that's why, that, that, that's why you know, the nipple, nipples can't show. It's kind of a computer says no kind of, you know, situation. But, 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 but surely that doesn't make any sense when you have like a completely naked like photo of the person otherwise. That's super sexual. But you couldn't know. I mean, you couldn't also get a super sexual photo through. But the point is that showing any nipple is being defined as sexual, which of course it isn't. Okay. So that's the issue. So obviously, you know, we shouldn't be showing overly sexualized images. You know, children might see, of course. I'm not suggesting otherwise. My issue is that we can't just assume that everything to do with breasts is sexual. That is really problematic um, because, you know, underwear is a practical item for women. They need to be able to see it and choose what they want to buy. And the nipple might show you. It might be a, a semi-sheer fabric, which is, a, you know, that you can see the nipple slightly. That doesn't yeah. mean it's sexualized. Yeah. You know, some images are fine. And I, I have no issue with, you know, overtly, you know, sexualized images not, not getting through. But it's the kind of blanket rule that's the issue. Yeah. yeah in fact, um, you're saying that uh, the bra is this kind of sexualized object. Mm. I would think if you remove the bra, then that becomes much more sensual <laughs> and much more sexual, right? Yeah, that's like, true. Yeah, I'm sure it'd be harder to get a, naked, a, a topless picture. <laughs> 
to throw them a picture with a bra. No, no, I mean, so in that's real life. When, as you, yeah. as you, you know, work yeah. and go around and, and live your life, it's, it's, if a man, you know, sees a woman that is braless, then that's considered more somehow sexual, right? Because. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, so we, I've, not, I've not actually tested that of no bra, but seeing a nipple through clothing. That's an interesting one. I've not tested tested the robots on that yet. Because but. I'm just thinking, if 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 kids, you know, grow up on Instagram and they or whatever on internet and everywhere the the, the nipple is blurred, won't at some point a girl is going to tell her mommy, "Mommy, what is this on my body?" <laughs> what is this thing? <laughs> the photos don't have yeah, that. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly that. Yeah. I mean, it's exactly. It's kind of. The, the hoops you need to jump through. It would be funny if it wasn't so concerning. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, uh, very, very interesting point uh, about the photos. And I think you're doing so much more than just marketing, you know, your brand. You are showing to the world that it's okay to be different. It, you don't have to be the standardized one size fits all okay yeah yeah exactly that mm. yeah which i think is what you're kind of striving for so your motto um your motto is a, on a mission to redefine sensuality so what does that mean so sensuality has always been presented as something shared i think between two people so that's something you share with your partner or you know whoever you're choosing to share it with Whereas to us, to me, sensuality is something that is owned by a person. Mm. It's you, you don't even need, you know, you may choose to, you know, enjoy with somebody else, but it is something owned by you. Um, and so, you know, you adorn your body, you wear the lingerie for you. You can seek pleasure for you. So it's really sort of redefining that idea. You know, so many women, you know, I meet at parties, so I say what I do. And they'll say, oh, I've not bought any lingerie for so long because I've been married this long or I don't have a boyfriend right now. Or that's so many people's immediate reaction because they see their sensuality, their lingerie as, you know, connected to mm. an other. And what we're saying is, well, no, you know, this is something that you you own, that you can enjoy, that you should enjoy um, for you just as you um so that's really sort of the the, the the sort of change that we're trying to to talk to and to help women understand dress up for yourself and buy this nice thing for yourself and enjoy it yourself exactly because you can yeah and we know that right we know that great new clothes make us feel good you know great pjs great you know nice things give us that lift yeah lingerie should be exactly the same as that it shouldn't be any different um but it's been positioned for so many years as something different that it's it takes time to unpick that. Mm. So tell me a little bit uh, about the growing and the evolution of Lubella. So you told me mm -hmm. how it started. Mm -hmm. What happened next? So, I mean, I started it on a bit of a shoestring and to keep kind of overheads low. I mean, initially I kind of had a very basic range did you have a designer small. were you designing what was what were the first things what were the first people so I found some production in Poland actually Eastern, you know Poland's got um, a long history of, of laundry production some very good factories there and I found someone who could do very very small runs because obviously the issue is MOQ minimum order quantity um, and so I had a very small um, collection and I was sort of selling 
you know, to friends, local events, you know, really to try and understand more what people liked, what they didn't like. And as that started to grow and do well, um, what I started to do is bring people on to sell to their networks. So almost a direct selling model, essentially, um, selling at local events to, to friends. And this is when e-commerce was kind of in its infancy. So there wasn't this, you know, home shopping you know, you had to go out to shop. So actually it was a way people shopped socially with their friends, etc. Um, and so that, and the business grew like that. Um, I did my first, it started to take off. I needed investment um, to grow. And that, that was difficult the first round because as I mentioned earlier, you know, the angel community in the UK is, predominantly male I mean I think back then it was about 95% male I don't know what it is now and those angel investors understandably invest in industries they know right they've made their money in biotech they invest in biotech or whatever and that's you know I get that but the problem is if you're a brand that's a female focused brand none of them got experience in what you're doing and so they're nervous to invest so I really struggled I couldn't find anyone to put any money in and that was very demoralizing mm. how um, long did you show for oh the Can't side remember. came yeah, back. The side, the, side the deep, came right the deep back. fundraising side that <laughs> yeah. we all know so well. And, um, I can't remember now, but maybe six months, something like that. Mm. Um, and you know, you're hearing a lot of no's. It's yeah. sort of depressing. And um, and then eventually, I decided that I would take. Sorry to interject. No, so, what were okay. you telling yourself when you went out of this other office and they were like, mm, "Not really." What? How did you pick yourself up? I think I've always been quite tenacious as a person. I don't know where that comes from exactly. Um, but my, my parents kind of instilled in me this idea of sort of, you know, if you commit to something, you, you do it. Yeah. I mean, I always remember when I was a child, when I was about, um, eight, I used to, you know, I started going horse riding once a week with my friend and for Christmas or birthday, whatever it was, I was like, I really want a riding helmet, my own one, you know, and this is what I wanted. I remember my parents sitting me down saying, if we buy you this, you know, this is expensive. You know, I think I got the boots and the hat. This is expensive. So you there, you can't give this up. You need, you know, this is a hobby you're doing now. If we're going to buy it, you, you keep, you keep doing it. So I was like, oh yeah, you know, kid. Yeah, yeah. So I got the hat for my birthday. Then soon after that, I had a fall. I fell off the horse and I didn't really hurt myself, but it gave me a shock. And I was actually quite scared to go. And I remember every week I was, really quite petrified to go but I didn't because I knew they'd invested in me and they bought me this hat and these boots I had to keep going mm. and I had to get past that and I didn't really say anything and I used to do these like weird things like I used to save a sweet from the weekend and hide it somewhere so that when I was at the riding I knew I could come home and find have the sweet at the end you know, like thinking back it was probably a little bit odd really but I suppose instilling in me that kind of tenacity of pick yourself up you know you know keep I'd, your word as well keep, yeah I'd, I'd invested myself in the business you know um my dad had invested in me I need to make this work so I think it was really just I never considered anything than just finding a way through it if I'm honest it was never like oh maybe this isn't going to work it mm. was just right there's got to be a way through this and this is a very I just I just want to pause there for a second and emphasize how crucial this little thing is because it's like if you see and there's a highway or whether it be a, a little path in the jungle, if there's just that one thing and there's nothing on the sides, it's like focus, like mm. it becomes like a laser focus. And when you have a laser focus, we know it can burn a hole, right? 
Whereas if it's just light, like sunlight, mm. it's, it's just it's just dispersed and things are not going to get done. So when you exclude the possibilities of, oh, maybe my plan B, my plan C, my plan D, uh, if I give up, it's going to be fine anyway. So there's all of these other paths that can veer off. All of that is your kind of vision taking away from your attention and your focus and therefore your energy that you put towards actually achieving that goal. So that's a very important point. Yeah, but but it's funny actually because I've reflected on this point um, with the wisdom of age and it's like, where is that line, right? So I've been somebody, I will keep doing it. And I think, you know, think about my own children and what I would advise them when they're older. At what point actually should you be like, well, actually, mm. maybe this isn't right for me? Because um, I had years in the business that were really hard, you know, that I probably really didn't enjoy it very much. Um, years. <laughs> Emphasis. And, okay. But I kept on. And I'm grateful of that now, you know, very much so. Um, but, I, you know, it's hard to know where's that line when you should be like, actually, you know. But anyway, back then it was very much, let's just get this done. Um, and what happened in the end was I was like, right, I need to find high net worth women. I need women to be seeing what I'm doing. And I just wasn't seeing any women at these, you know, pitching events. And so in the end, I put on my own event for high net worth women. And I should stress, I didn't know any high net worth women. This was mm. very much cold calling, you know, cold calling, connecting, okay. you know, on LinkedIn. It was very, you know, as my mum would say, chutzpah, you know, very much sort of pushing. And, um, and through that event, I met... Um, a newly formed group of all-female angels called Adidi. They'd just formed. I think they were one of the first all-female groups and then we became their first investment. Mm. So, you know, that that was the, the first round. Um, and then I, I grew the business through that direct selling model. So I, I started to recruit more and more people and they recruit, and, in, and at our peak, we had about... When you say direct selling? So this is this people selling to other people. Mm. So it's a, basically you have an army of self-employed sellers that sell in their communities, local parties, events, etc. Um, Not e-commerce, okay. Yeah, so Tupperware, everyone knows, mm -hmm. you know, Avon, these comp these are how, you know, th these yeah, were direct yeah. selling companies. Um and at our peak, we had about 500 women that were um, doing this. Um, and at the time, I thought, well, this way of selling is only going to grow because when you looked at the US and the UK, per capita, we had about, I think, about half a million direct sellers in the UK back then. Mm -hmm. And per capita, as compared to the US, there should have been like over 2 million. So I thought, okay, this is going to grow. Um, but then a few things happened. One was I realised it was becoming impossible to control the brand because it's fine when it's people I've recruited and I, but then as it grows, you lose control over, you know, the message. the message. And so that was one issue. The other issue was because you kind of have this captive audience and you, you sort of end up diluting your brand by thinking, okay, we need to kind of sell to everyone who's in the room and they're not all going to buy this core offering, so we need other things. So the brand essentially gets diluted. Mm. Um, plus, as e-commerce was growing, you know, people could shop at home in other ways. At which point did you set up the e-commerce? Um, gosh, got my years. I mean, I think we had it from early on, but it wasn't great, you know, and it wasn't, you know, the focus. Um, I think we only really got serious about e-commerce um, maybe even slightly later, yeah. So we were kind of growing, yeah. So that, so 
so it, it, it started to become clear that it wasn't the way forward. And I'll be honest, I personally fell out of love with it because although it was very inspiring because I had all these women that were essentially all many, you know, entrepreneurs, they were having to be entrepreneurial themselves and hearing some of their stories was always, you know, lifted me. But equally, it was sort of a people business and pretty unreliable. You know, you'd have someone amazing, but then they'd move away or, you know, it was sort of moving away from the product and the core mission to be about mobilising people, which, so I'd sort of, had fallen out of love with it as a sales channel. And so I realized I needed to transition the business to e-commerce focus, you know, with wholesale. Um, and that was tough because we'd plateaued. We weren't yet profitable. And, you know, going out for money, you know, was it was not a great story. Yeah. It was not a great story. And so... And this is how many years in? I don't know, maybe like four or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, maybe four years in, okay. something like that. So it had grown well. Like the sales growth was really strong. But then the way the way direct selling works is you have quite a... Um, um, your variable costs um, are quite big because you're paying commission through this mm. structure. And then you have your fixed cost base. So you burn a lot of cash and then you become quite cash generative once you cross that line. Yeah. And so we were kind of always just sort of getting to the line, but not quite over it. So we were still burning cash. And then I realized this was not the way we were yeah. going to grow the business. So we needed to raise more money to transition it. So I did a small round. People followed on. Um, but then I'd also heard about a book that was becoming very okay. popular at the time called Fifty Shades of Grey, which was a phenomenon at the time, this book that was sort of this erotic novel and it was kind of a viral sensation Mm -hmm. basically and I heard about this and the author was British you know living here in London and so basically decided to pitch to the author that we should create the official lingerie line Mm. so not under Blue Bella the Fifty Shades um, lingerie line um, as a way to kind of one we thought we'd do a great job at it but also to you know to you know help transition the rest of the business and so we pitched to the author and amazingly got it, which was a coup because we were, <laughs> we were tiny. And she was a real amazing supporter of other women and wanted to support a young woman, etc. So that was, that was, you know, amazing because she probably could have gone anywhere with it. Um, and we, and that was a sort of two-year project and it was a you know, huge project, started in the UK, but then we got the license across parts of Europe as well. Um, and that was all consuming. It taught me a lot. It was a very different product to Bluebella. Um, but it allowed us to, you know, to learn and, you know, and to use, you know, use the profit from that deal to transition the rest of the business. So it was kind of a, an unusual way of, of, of instead of sort of trying to get more money at that point, we kind of used that to help transition the business to e-commerce and wholesale. So how did that then impact? I can imagine, you know, it, those funds allowed you to then uh, go and take Bluebella online fully. Exactly. So we we then were able to properly, you know, we had a whole load of operational stuff to sort out, mm-hmm. the website, you know, also on the product development side. So there was a whole load of stuff to do, um, which we did, and then started to grow nicely. And then I wanted to expand into the US and also to, to sort of add product categories. Because lingerie... 
you know, however amazing your product is, and obviously ours is, um, women, particularly in this country, in the UK, only will buy it so many times a year. Mm-hmm. So you kind of need the nightwear and you need kind of things around it. So we wanted to expand our product categories and we also wanted to launch in the US. And so we did a crowdfund in 2016. Um, so you raised sort of 1.2 million, I think. And, um, and that was... a, a allowed us to do that and we've been you know we've been pro- profitable since then so that's so that's the fundraising no so we've been profitable and been able to fund our own growth story you know since then which has been great yeah. amazing yeah and so crowdfunding versus angel yeah very different what's what's uh, so, more useful or so, easy or better so the what crowdfunding is so the reason i wanted to do it was i had this I had this we were thinking you need to raise some money i had a meeting in um a bar or a restaurant with someone about something. And the guy I was meeting with was like, oh, look, look, they've got my beer here. And I was like, what do you mean your beer? And he was like, my beer, I invested in, you know, and he'd done some small crowd investment in this beer. But because of that, he was telling me the whole story of this beer, how it was brewed, mm. why it was invested great, interest. this whole thing. And I was like, wow, that's really powerful. Having was it brewed up? Kind of... <laughs> no, it wasn't brewed up. There's been a lot of them, I think, they've raised. And so I was like, that's really powerful that having this army of, you know, your investors are you know, this army of brand ambassadors. So I think if you're a consumer brand, there's something really interesting about that. Um, so that sparked my interest. Um, and that's, you know, one of the reasons we decided to do it. Also, we weren't, we've never been kind of, you know, if it, you know sort of typical thing is that when you don't need the money, everyone wants to give it to you. But back then... For institutional investor, we weren't kind of typical. It was a traditional business. We were making a product and selling it, you know, mm. whereas back then all the kind of, that, that was sort of not in vogue. And so, um, yeah, we decided to, to do it. It was very successful, the raise. Um, and I think it has its place, Crowd. I think you have to manage it, um, you know, in terms of the comms and keeping everyone informed. Um, the actual raise is very time consuming. So, you know, we really run it as a market, proper marketing campaign, brought someone in to help with help with it. Um, but yeah, so, you know, for us, it was the right thing at that point, yeah. So you said you've been profitable ever, ever since, yeah. you haven't raised anything else. It's still your own company. So is it, I don't know, can I ask that? Do we know how much you're making a year? What's the revenue? Like how big is the company? Some sort of idea. Yeah. Um, yeah. So last year we were at 15 million in um, in revenue. Um, so net revenue. Um, and yeah, and it's growing, growing nicely. So um, I think we, you know, we now, we're now sort of bubbling. I feel like we've kind of spent a long time. I mean, for us, Brexit was a, a disaster. We had over a third of the business in the EU at the point that Brexit happened. So if Brexit hadn't happened, we'd be twice as big. Just make that point for anyone okay. that voted for it. But um, <laughs> that was really difficult because overnight, you know, we tumbled out of the EU in a very unelegant way. No one really knew what was going on or what to do about it. And it's really taken us till very recently to sort that out, um, which we now have and we can now start pushing EU again. So we're at kind of an exciting point now. So EU, you know, with the EU retaking off. But the US has been great for us. You know, mm. that's, you know, amazing market for us and doing really well. So, um, um, yeah. Yeah, amazing. I want to ask you if you had a chance and a way to give an advice to some female entrepreneurs that are starting their businesses now. What would you What would you tell them? What has helped you the most? You reckon in terms of maybe your own personal qualities or traits Mm. or beliefs 
or just actions that you've done? So I think I'd say two things. One was the point we touched on earlier about tenacity. I think that is always a way. I think being creative about how you address um, things and get people on side is really key. I mean, you know, I just mentioned Brexit. You know, we had this issue, for example, this is just one small example. We had this issue with a big EU retailer that we just couldn't get aligned on what they needed post-Brexit. And we were just banging our heads again and again. And we just couldn't. And in the end, we were like, right, we did this whole package for their head of customs department. And it had like little chocolates in it had a Brexit joke book in it had this whole kind of comedy like sorry that we left the EU but can you help and you know he was on the phone in five minutes laughing his head off like right what do you need right and it's just these little examples of there's always a way you know to kind of through so I think that that tenacity you know and not worrying about the mistakes you know the mistakes are part of the entrepreneurial experience and it's really important to understand that so that when they happen and they will that you you fall over, you've made the mistake, you know, but then you learn from it and get back up again. Don't spend too long down there or any time at all because that's a waste of time and energy. Mm. And I think knowing that, you know, the entrepreneurial journey is this constant falling over and getting up again is kind of a healthy thing to know because then you realise it's part of the journey. So mm. certainly that whole tenacious element, I would say. The other thing I would say, which I wish I had, it's taken me a long time to get to this point, is... I had unknowingly absorbed a lot of sort of patriarchal nonsense Mm. as a young female entrepreneur. I mean, I think when I was pregnant with my first child, I almost apologised to my board about it. I mean, I'm sorry, I'm a mother. You know, which is ridiculous, right? You know, so there was so much about, you know, I think our idea of leadership, our kind of cookie cutter, this is leadership, is so much around this kind of male dominant you know figure Um, and I now I'm really sort of conscious to talk about and normalize female leadership which can look quite different and is as good if not better you know so I don't know why this is and it shouldn't be but typically I found you know female leaders tend to be more collaborative they tend to have slightly less hierarchical environments you know, they, there's different sort of characteristics of, of, of female leadership, which are really valuable. And young women shouldn't be, you know, because all their examples have been these, these male leaders. You know, I made the mistake probably of emulating elements that were not, you know, naturally me or, or whatever. Mm. Um, and so, you know, that that's taken me sort of time to unpick a lot of that. So I think the more women we can, examples of female leaders, female leadership, we can get in front of young women, the better. Yeah, it's amazing. I think what I'm hearing you say is really embracing your own uniqueness, your own style, your own upside and and leading with that rather than trying to emulate something that is traditionally said mm-hmm. to be good because you'll never know until you try mm-hmm. and your original traits might just be the thing that will change the game or change that market or change that product because everyone has been stalling Mm. and not daring to to try do the things their own way yeah yeah exactly it's very very valuable thank you for that and if i asked you what is your purpose for me what motivates me the most about what i do you know it's all about women you know for me i'm so passionately motivated to try, for this 
this path to gender equality. You know, I feel that we are, you know, not just for women as a society, a country, a world. The benefits of of bringing women up to to, to reach that parity will be so, you know, so wide ranging that that's what we absolutely have to do. So for me, you know, what motivates me is being able to share, you know, my view of the world with this female audience, you know, around, you know, empowerment of women, around diversity, about celebrating celebrating strength and femininity in women, all these these, these things. That's really what, what drives me. Mm. Tell me a little bit more about the Garrick Club. The Garrick. Um, so it's, 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 a, it's quite random how it all started, but basically I was looking around for a, a members club. So our offices are in East London. I sometimes have meetings more centrally. And you know, I was just looking at different options and I came across the Garrick, which I'd never heard of, quite frankly. Um, but the, there's a Garrick, there's also a few others that are all male members clubs. I thought, oh, this kind of, I didn't know this still existed. This is interesting. Obviously, there are female members clubs and I understand the purpose of a female members club because generally they are to try and, you know, elevate women who are underrepresented. So I was like, oh, this is kind of interesting. And then I started looking into them and the Garrick really jumped out because it's a club that is really highly populated by the legal profession. So the lawyer magazine estimated that 25% or more of the senior judiciary are members. So a lot of, you know, senior ranking legal professionals. Um, and the legal profession is one where at the senior ranks, women are really un- underrepresented. Mm-hmm. So there are women, you know, and it's getting better at the junior ranks, but certainly if you look at the high court, if you look at kind of KCs, etc., women are really underrepresented. And it's a profession that's particularly important. We have good representation, right? These are the people making the laws, make, you know. So then I was like, oh, this, you know, started looking at it. And then I could see that a lot of women, you know, the few women who had reached the top of the legal profession had very openly spoken out against the Garrick, that it was problematic, mm. you know. So people like Lady Hale, people like Dana Rose, saying, you know, that this is an issue. And so I just couldn't believe that it was still the case, that mm. this no-women policy existed. So I was, I was just quite surprised. So probably quite naively thought, well, I'll see if I can do something about it. So initially, I essentially, under the Equality Act, kind of filed a writ saying that, you know, because... It's a bit of a funny one that the Equality, the Equality Act says that you can't discriminate by gender if you are a service provider, right? And they have restaurants and bars at the Garrick, so you, they're a service provider. But you are allowed to, um, ex, you know, discriminate based on gender if you are an association. Mm. And that's for good reason, right? Male voice choir, you know, women's group for the, you know, there's re- yeah. there's reasons for being for that. And so really, I started down the legal route, but actually... The, the legal case hinges on this definition of the club. Is it a service provider? Is it an association? Um, and it, but it got a huge amount of interest. I mean, it went completely bonkers. Mm. You know, I didn't expect... There was all this press coverage, um, quite depressing, a lot of it, you know. So I kind of had thought... What do you mean? Well, I suppose to me it was a fairly, you know... Here's a club... Straightforward. You know, to me, in my kind of, I guess, bubble, we all live in these bubbles, is, okay, here's a club that says no women. It's mainly, you know, it's got all these legal professionals that are members. The women that are at the top of that profession are saying it's a problem. This is a club that's detrimental to females' professional advancement in the law. That's not okay. Yeah. 
But that is not a kind of, you know, there's a very mixed view on, on, on that. And what I realised, you know, with the press coverage, much of it completely missed the point. I mean, the, the headline in the Times was Bra Queen's Rising Passion. Okay. So that it was all about this juxtaposition as, as me as this female lingerie brand owner and then the club, you know. I mean, there was a comment piece in the mail which said something like, oh, we've seen her photo. I'm sure she could get a lunch date there if she tried, which was, I mean, overtly sexist. And so I suppose I thought we were further, what it made me realise is I thought we were further along than we actually were. That was kind of my overall impression. I, you know, I'm fairly thick skinned. I didn't mind all the nutters on Twitter mm. and all that, but... It was more that. And so so then I realised, okay, first of all, this legal route is kind of, it's a moral issue. You know, it's not a legal issue because morally we can see, for example, there is a female barristers association and we can all see why there needs to be one. There is not a male barristers association. And if there was, people would be like, hang on a minute. And it's not just men and women. You know, if there was a if there was a female nursing association not allowing men in, that wouldn't be okay because men are underrepresented yeah. in that. You know, so it's it, it, it's a moral issue. So I thought, okay, let's just take try and take myself out of it. I'm not. This is the issue. Is this? It's 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 um, diverting having me in the issue. So I basically got an amazing um, girl to help me, and we wrote to every chambers in the country. We did a petition. It's, online, you can all see it, womenatthegarrick.org, and um, with a joint statement to Garrick members of why the club rules are problematic. We've so far had now over 130 KCs um, sign that and many other legal professions, various MPs, etc. to try and explain the issue. Obviously, that got barely any press coverage because it's not a juicy story about someone who sells knickers. and then we've had various other iterations. Cherie Blair joined the campaign and she gave this amazing quote saying that um, 40 years ago, she was left standing outside the Garrick while her fellow pupil, that's what they call junior barristers, her fellow, fellow pupil was taken in for drinks by the boss. And of course, that fellow pupil was Tony Blair. And so the point being, you know, how can we not see the message for young women, you know, that you're not, you know, you're not, you're not, invited. you're not good enough to belong. You might be allowed in as a guest sometimes, but you're not good enough to belong. Um, so she joined the campaign. There's been a few other iterations. I'm working on the next phase um, because I just needs. I'm sort of cautiously optimistic if the club called a vote, the members would vote to admit women. You know, they, they the last vote, which was sort of a while back now, was 50.5% voted to admit women, but it's a two-thirds majority. Mm. So they just need to call a vote and admit women, and let's all move on with our lives. You know, it's... it's. But what I've kind of realised through the process is because I've sort of, you know, I'm in touch with all these female KCs now, and many of them wrote to me sharing their experiences of the bar and of the courts, and ha- there is a lot of misogyny in, that, in those spaces, particularly with, you know, these judges that are often of an older generation. But the problem with that profession is, you know, they're all self-employed. Their whole career relies on relationships with the judges, getting the work from the solicitors, mm. etc. So there's this huge disincentive for any kind of whistleblowing. You don't want to be the one moaning. You don't want to be the one saying, well, hang on. Mm. So because of that, there's this problem in that profession. That's why no one in the profession has sort of dumped, started this campaign or... And so I've kind of realised through the process as an outsider, maybe I can do this a little bit of good, you know, um, 
and try and move things along. So, yeah, that's my little hobby. <laughs> wow. So hoping the establishment, yeah. the, the, a traditional hobby for sure. Yeah. That's amazing. That's amazing, Emily. Yeah. Yeah. Um, before we wrap up, I'd like to ask you, yes. uh, what have I not asked you that you think I should? Oh, that my could goodness. Be the audience. Oh, that's a good question, isn't it? I think for me, you know, going back to this point of normalizing female leadership is, you know, I've sort of built this career and, you know, still a long way to go, et cetera. But, you know, I run this business. I do things like the Garrick, et cetera. Um, and I think when I talked earlier about sort of absorbing the patriarchy, I've always kind of, you know, you're, you're in a professional space, you talk professionally and your personal life, your children, your family, you know, supporting your friends, all the things around you is kind of not mentioned or discounted or whatever, because we've kind of been taught to portray that kind of image by this, you know, this idea of this sort of male figure who sort of doesn't have any sort of personal ties as a professional. Mm. And I suppose, you know, the question I would say is, you know, maybe not a question, but just a thing to point out. is I think it's really important that we see our leaders as sort of humans and they have things going on in their lives, you know, health issues, their children, different things. And, you know, are navigating through that. And sometimes they're not that good at their job because of that. And so other times they're better, etc. Yeah. I just think that's like an important point to make, you know, because we've spent, you know, really super interesting time talking about these things. Um, but obviously, you know, part of a big part of my life is supporting my family, my friends, etc. Um, and that is as important, more important, obviously, um, than than, you know, anything else. So, yeah, this I is guess. actually another thing that I, I did that want point. to ask you. Yeah. Thank no, you for, no, that's okay. Thank you for uh, yeah. reminding me. So, and I would ask this question to a male as well. So Good. it's not just yeah. you. Yeah. Uh, how, even when you were telling me about the Fifty Shades of Grey yeah. deal, so you had to divert in a way from the core business that you had to do mm. and you had to do that. How was that possible? And on top of that question also, yeah. what helps you be able to do Bluebella and mm. Garrick and hobbies and <laughs> family and friends and yeah. community so the first part of that um so sorry the first part of the question was how did I it's about time it's all about time, time management. yeah team management time management I mean I'm still on a on a you know like I don't I'd love to say like I have this perfect balance and did it and I don't I mean that's the honest truth some I feel like sometimes I'm a good mom sometimes I'm a good business owner sometimes I'm like bad at both you know thank you so, for giving us like uh, the honest, a place to breathe I mean I think one thing I have learned which you know my, my daughter who's now four and she is now fine but she had very very serious health problems when she was a baby and the gift that gave me being in that situation of you know very nearly losing her is it made me understand what to stress about and what not to stress about, which is a huge gift to learn that lesson without, in this instance, having paid the price, right? And so now I kind of, I used to, you know, I'd be quite stressed and overwhelmed and depending what was going on. Whereas I think one thing I am really good at now is, you know, I don't, I only stress about things that are worth stressing about. Mm. And I can kind of have that, you know, so I think, finding a way to sort of have that perspective is really important. I think generally, you know, my view, you know, mothers and pregnant women, etc., you know, are discriminated against because people think, oh, if they have kids, they'll be distracted and they've got to this, got to that. My experience is the absolute opposite. 
working mothers particularly are the best time they get the most productivity out of time because they have to because they want to do these other things so you know I'm someone who's you know if I have a four minute walk from here to the tube station there might be some little thing I can kind of get done on the way so I'm sort of you know, I'm highly productive all the time, which is not always good. Sometimes my husband is like, oh. Um, but um, yeah, I think it's about, you know, I, I try to kind of make the space now every so often to come back to, you know, what are my, what are my goals? One, three, five. Am I working? What's the key things I'm working towards and creating that space? Mm. Uh, but the honest thing is, I, you know, I don't always get it right. You know, and there's often not enough time. Um but, you know, I have certain things that are sacred, you know, that there's certain, you know, those two hours up to bedtime, not every night, because it depends between me and my husband. But then when I'm with the kids, I try and be with the kids and, you know, switch off from everything else. Mm. Um, yeah, that's not a very good answer. It's a ramble. But yeah, I don't have all the answers. It's very, it's very <laughs> relieving, I think, to hear that even though you have achieved all of these things and you have this beautiful life that is so multifaceted, you're telling me that, no, I don't have it figured out and no, that I have days like that. So it just normalizes, I think, it for everyone to to have those days and not think, oh, but someone out there has it all figured out. I think we're all just kind of fluctuating all the time. For sure. I think it's really important to be honest about that mm. stuff. You know, you read these things, and, you know, people get up at 5 a.m., work out, do this, and you're just like, oh, my God, I can't, you know, I can't relate to that because I'm sort of... Um, and there are some days I feel like I'm smashing it. You know, there's some days that are like, yeah, I'm, you know, but there's, all, you know, there's many days I don't. Yeah. So it just, it varies. But I think the other thing is, as well, I learned actually so many lessons, I think, having kids is empowering my team. You know, when I, when I was pregnant, I, I sort of empowered my team with things that I then didn't take back, you know, afterwards. So I think it's also, you know, a good lesson in kind of, you know, I think most founders are probably control freaks or have elements of control mm. freakness in them. So learning to sort of, trust. you know, trust, let go, you know, and accept actually, well, that isn't quite how I do it. And maybe it's 5% worse, but actually the overall benefit of that, you know, not having too much time on it, etc. So sort of, yeah, trying to kind of keep perspective. Mm. Yeah. I, I heard you say a few times uh, during this interview, gift. And that just indicates to me uh, an aspect of your life philosophy, which is noticing things that are beautiful so gratitude mm -hmm. yeah but also transforming adversity into an advantage mm -hmm. through deeply learning about what it was mm -hmm. and how it can serve you going forward so I think those are some core qualities of precursors to success I think yeah gratitude for me is is a big one you know like I said this experience particularly and you only have to turn on the news particularly at the moment to you know, feel incredibly grateful for, you know, for, for what we have. So I think that um, for sure that that is a big guiding principle for me. And like you say, you know, turning things, you know, not, you can look at things in different ways, definitely. And I think also culturally in the business, I think it's really businesses where there's a blame culture, you know, that's hugely inhibitive of innovation, of people, you know, for me, it's I'd rather people tried things and it, and it went wrong and we've learned from it than people don't try things. Mm. So I think I try to, you know, I hope that the team would, would agree with this. I hope to sort of to foster a let's, let's, let's try stuff. Yeah. Um, but you, you have to then not have a blame culture around, you know, you have to kind of um, allow people 
you know, to make mistakes, etc. Yeah. Where is the balance between not having the blame culture and encouraging people to try and be proactive versus people relaxing so much because there's no repercussion that there's just, just chaos? I think that's all about processes and structure mm. for sure. You know, I think there's, you know, different, you know, there's innovation and there's kind of not bothering, you know. So I think, um, you know, I think that, I mean, it's something actually, you know, my COO who is, you know, far more structured than me has brought to my business is really sort of, as we've grown, you know, we're a team now of over 40. When we were small and I was involved in everything and knew everyone, it was easier. But now we're, we're bigger. It's exactly as you say, you need, you, you need sort of structure and process. So there's a, obviously there's sign off processes. So we're aware of any risk being taken, etc. cetera. Um, but also encouraging people to, you know, it's about communication. What you don't want is something's gone wrong and people are like, oh, don't want to say anything and mm. it gets worse and it gets worse. You need a culture where someone's yeah. like, this has happened. This is why I did it. This is what where we're up to. Let's talk about it. That's why, you know, yeah. that's what you want in a business. Yeah. yeah. Definitely, definitely agree. So as we wrap up, I will last, ask you my last question, which is, what's your recipe for happiness? Recipe for happiness. So gratitude's in there, 100%. I would put that in there. Um, I would say purpose, you know, that's the thread of your of your um, yes. your podcasts. You know, for me, I couldn't imagine, I, I'm, I'm happiest when I, I'm purpose-driven. So I think that's, and I think that's fairly universal in people mm. in different ways. Um, so I would say purpose for sure, love, friends, family, um, and well, cocktails on a beach. Hey, <laughs> that's that last sprinkle. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. Thank you so much, Emily. No, thanks for having me. It's been fun. Thank you. Hello, friends. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to subscribe and share it with someone. I would love to hear your feedback and suggestions as to what guests you would like to see in the show next. See you next week. <laughs>